Namaskar and welcome to Radio Eka. My name is Shruti Deora and my name is Priyanka and we are your hosts for the Radio Eka podcast. Eka is a place to learn yoga nidra, pranayama and meditations from India. We have a mobile app and we also offer daily meditation classes on Zoom. If you want to try the app or join our classes, please check out our website www.ekameditation.com or just check the show notes. So as we continue on this path to understand yoga therapy, today we are grateful to have with us Dr. Sabir Singh Khalsa. Sabirji is the director of yoga research for the Yoga Alliance and the Kundalini Research Institute. He's a research associate at the Benson Harry Institute for Mind-Body Medicine, research affiliate at the Osher Center for Integrative Medicine, and an associate professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. He has conducted research on yoga since 2001 and has been a practitioner and instructor of Kundalini Yoga since 1973. His research has evaluated yoga for insomnia, stress, anxiety-related disorders, and in workplace and public school settings. He works with the International Association of Yoga Therapists as scientific director for the annual symposium on yoga research and as editor-in-chief of the International Journal of Yoga Therapy. He is medical editor of Harvard Medical School Special Report, Introduction to Yoga, and chief editor of the medical textbook, The Principles and Practice of Yoga in Healthcare. Wow, thank you so much for joining us today, Sadbiji. We really appreciate your time. No, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for this invitation. Great. So let's dive right in. But before we begin with our main topic, we'd love to hear your life story and what brought you to yoga and, you know, dedicate your life to this. Well, I became interested in the idea of altered states of consciousness and then ultimately yoga in the early 1970s when I was an undergraduate student at the University of Toronto. And at that time, I was uh, reading a lot of books and understanding the psychology, philosophy, and basics of yoga and meditation type practices. So I decided that I would begin a yoga practice. And it just so happened that there was a course on campus for credit for yoga, which was very unusual at that time. And so I took that course and there was the practice of Kundalini Yoga and I never turned around from that. I moved into a yoga ashram in Toronto in 1973. And in the mid 70s, I had the interest coming back to me from my scientific interests when I was an undergraduate. And my goal that I established at that time was to do research on yoga. So I went back to school and back to graduate school again at the University of Toronto and got my PhD in neuroscience. And long story short, in 2001, when the National Center for Complementary and Integrative Health actually started funding uh, full-size grants, I was able to apply for a grant and I began my research on yoga uh, in 2001. So that's uh, that was the fulfillment of joining my personal passion and lifestyle together with my career. That is very wonderful and inspiring. And I think um, luckier the people who are able to join passion with their work. So that's great. And also, I think then you're probably one of the pioneers of all the medical research and, you know, scientific trials that are happening on the impacts of yoga. So 
thank you for all that work and we'll talk about it in a little bit so but before uh, we talk about yoga therapy uh, maybe you could take a few minutes to uh, you know define what is yoga to you we have examined various definitions of yoga on our podcast uh, you know from patanjali or bhagavad gita or just the practical definitions today but we'd love to hear your thoughts on that so yoga is practiced most commonly in the form of the physical postures and exercises of the asanas and and there's a good deal of that type of practice in which people practice just the asanas and so for those individuals yoga is essentially a form of exercise but traditionally and this is an understanding that most yoga researchers and academics and scholars have the traditional yoga incorporates not just the asanas but also the breathing techniques the pranayama practices also the deep relaxation and very importantly the meditative component and for many of us who are academics we actually believe that the meditative component is perhaps one of the most important components and that the physical components of yoga are really there to support that cognitive meditative component which ultimately leads to changes in spirituality so that's how i would de- define yoga it's a multi component practice and and what i refer to as traditional yoga perfect i think it aligns perfectly well with how patanjali uh, you know defined yoga that we commonly hear yoga chitta vritti nirodha so uh, basically focused on assessing the fluctuations of mind so really mind control because i think in today's world a lot of us identify ourselves with just the mind and we don't realize that the mind is running our lives and so to be able to take a step back and use mind as a tool rather than have it control you that's great so you talked about these different elements of yoga how do these different elements individually or together contribute to a healthy you know to good health basically healthy body healthy mind how do these come together from your you know from your medical science perspective there's research done on each of those aspects of yoga on the physical um, postures and exercises on the relaxation techniques on the pranayama and on the meditative component and there's also research of course in combining those all together into a yoga intervention or a yoga practice so we know from each one of those each one of those four components makes changes on the physical level and this manifests like from the asana and the relaxation into the physical body improving things like physical fitness flexibility muscular strength etc um we also know that the asanas and the pranayama practices and the relaxation also affect respiratory function. Mm-hmm. Um and then we also know that meditation has an effect on the physical body as well. Uh it changes the physical uh, characteristics of the stress and emotion response systems which has impact on the body particularly on the autonomic nervous system uh and on the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis which are the systems that mediate you know stress and emotion responses. So there's that physical aspect that you can consider that all of these practices contribute to. And then there's the construct that is very important in yoga and that is the idea that these practices with training over time allow individuals to self-regulate internal state both psychological characteristics and physiological characteristics. 
Perhaps one of the most important characteristics is the self-regulation of stress and emotion, both physically and um, psychologically. And that leads to an overall sense of resilience to stress, equanimity in the face of the ups and downs of emotions, which leads to an overall psychological improvement in, in functioning. Now, another aspect that's very important in yoga is primarily coming from the meditative component of yoga, when you focus attention. Um, and when you do that over time, engaging the attention networks and the focus of attention that, that is meditation, you end up improving your self-regulation of internal thought processes. And one of the major things that occurs is an improvement in mind-body awareness. Because you're engaging the attention networks, you become more attentive, you become more sensitive over time. And this has also been known as mindfulness, which has become a very powerful construct in the field of psychology and one of the major outcomes of meditative practices. And of course, yoga practice over time leads to increases in mindfulness. And this is really at the heart of what Patanjali's Yoga Sutras were about, is this idea of self-regulation of thought processes. Now, as one practices this a meditative component regularly over prolonged periods of time, one comes to a realization that one is not one's thoughts, that although you have thoughts, that's not exactly who you are because you develop the ability to self-regulate those thoughts. You, you change your reactivity to those thoughts. And in fact, you even have the capability of changing those thoughts at will if you so choose. And that realization is very important. And in fact, it's, it's a construct we call metacognition. The idea that you are separate from those thoughts and you have the ability to self-regulate. And this is, this is not something that is recognized actually by the general population. Most people, you know, what they think is who they are and what they do. But as you develop meditative practices over time, you, you make it this realization and, and this change in metacognition. And that's very important, not only improving your mindfulness and awareness, but also in changing your relationship to um, uh, your own thought processes. And then the final component, I think, that comes from these practices, and again, it's mostly from the meditative component. And this one typically takes longer to occur for most individuals uh, with regular practice. One starts to change one's perception of reality um, through these uh, experiences that may occur in meditation, these transcendental states, these unitive states of consciousness. One comes to a different um, realization of what one's role is in the world. Um, and that is really transformative. Um, these, these experiences are very deep and profound. They're very different than ordinary waking states. And once you have that type of an experience, it really changes your perception on who you are, what you are, and what your relationship is to the rest of the world. And it changes your goals in life and changes your life perspective. It changes your life meaning and purpose. And if you will, um, that can be classed as a change in spirituality. Um, and so those are the sort of four areas that I think Yoga practice over time makes changes in the physical component, which I refer to typically as fitness, uh, to self-regulation, to mind-body awareness, and then to spirituality. And that, that really summarizes sort of the model of how yoga affects uh, both psychological and physical functioning. Wow. I think I'm left a little bit speechless, <laughs> but uh, I think this was... Uh 
really well put and thank you for uh, sharing all the different dimensions of our life that yoga can impact and have a positive impact on and it's really great to hear that from you know from somebody who has been a practitioner as well as uh, you know uh, uh, coming from it uh, coming at it from a medical science perspective so let's just um, let me just go right into our main topic for today which is yoga therapy so how would you define yoga therapy and how does it fit into or differ from the broader context of modern approach to medical science? Well, yoga therapy is the application of yoga um, typically and most often for medical and psychological conditions. So it's, it's as a treatment, if you will. However, a broader interpretation of yoga therapy could actually be uh, preventive medicine as well to some degree, although most of the time yoga therapy really refers to the treatment of some kind of a physical or, or psychological condition. Now, from that model that I described to you of all those effects on the physical body, self-regulation, mind-body awareness, mm -hmm. the impact of how yoga can make changes in mental and uh, physical functioning is, is obvious and, and improving those functions is what is at the heart of virtually every medical or psychological condition, which is basically dysfunction. And so as you improve function with yoga, you are basically removing that dysfunction, whatever it is. Um, that is sort of the overall global way that we can conceptualize how yoga works as a therapy, but we can become more specific as well. So for example, in low back pain, if there is a physical cause to that low back pain, the asanas can be very directly helpful in terms of the stretching aspect, the isometrics, in terms of improving physical functioning. So you can target yoga in sort of very specific ways. Um, the increase in self-regulation of emotion is very important in dealing with disorders like anxiety and depression. Um, but that's also true for the induction of metacognition, which is a major um, player in terms of its effects on psychological conditions like depression and anxiety. But I think the biggest place where yoga has this potential impact is, is in so-called non-communicable diseases. These are essentially lifestyle diseases. They're due to major risk factors like low levels of physical activity, poor dietary choices, dysfunctional behaviors like cigarette smoking and excessive alcohol consumption, and then also chronic stress. And so how do you change lifestyle to either correct uh, an existing uh, non-communicable disease like diabetes or hypertension or depression? And yoga basically will work on those risk factors. Um, so stress, we know, actually is a major player in virtually every disorder. And stress is one of the major factors responsible for the development of psychological conditions like depression and anxiety. So the idea of being able to reduce depression and anxiety directly works on a risk factor for mental health conditions. Mm -hmm. In terms of lifestyle behaviors, uh, in terms of like sedentary activity or dietary choices, the increase in mindfulness or mind-body awareness is now known to have a direct impact on people's lifestyle behaviors. 
So just to give you an example, um, someone is, you know, constantly smoking cigarettes. And then they go off and they do two months of yoga practice. They become much more sensitive. And then they go and they smoke a cigarette and they say, wow, that feels awful. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I never noticed how that felt to me before I, when I was, you know, not practicing yoga. But now I'm, I'm really highly sensitive to it. And it feels awful. And because it feels awful, I'm not induced to want to smoke a cigarette again. So I'm, I'm choosing not to because it feels awful. Mm-hmm. And then in terms of dietary choices, they'll go off and have, you know, Big Mac with French fries and a, and a milkshake. And they'll say, oh, my God, you know, I used to love eating that all the time before I practiced yoga. But now it just feels awful after I do that. And you know, the other day I had some fresh salad and I felt really good. So I'm I'm really starting to be attracted to fresh salad and I'm driven away from, from the junk and processed foods. So yoga works at a very fundamental level to change lifestyle behavior, which is really the solution for non-communicable disease because it is a lifestyle disease. It is based upon those lifestyle factors mm-hmm. of dietary choices, um, sedentary activity and chronic stress. Absolutely. And I think what I'm also getting from what you just said is it's the sustainability of those lifestyle changes that also is more, uh, you know, probably long lasting with yoga, because a lot of people do these diets and, you know, which are, you know, maybe the flavor of the day. Uh, but a lot of times once the dieting is over, they go back to their similar you know, health conditions. But with yoga, you become aware of that this food works for your body or it doesn't. For example, a lot of people ask me, why, how come I don't like chocolate? But I'm like, once I have chocolate, I feel my teeth are complaining that why did you have it? So I definitely don't feel attracted to it. And that's where I uh, you know, choose not to have it. So that's, I think that sustainability is very critical. Um, so that's great. And also because it seems to uh, what you know it has been learned is that medical sciences have improved so much in terms of the mortality rates from communicable diseases, but it's the lifestyle diseases that are basically of epidemic proportions uh, in today's world. So um, I think yoga ha- has that uh, important role to play, uh, even with our uh, you know all the uh, modern science that's around us. So let's take a little bit of a deeper dive into the mental health aspect of it. Uh, You know, just recently I was reading that as per World Health Organization, the global prevalence of anxiety and depression increased by a massive 25%. And that's due to COVID over the last couple of years. But even with, with or without COVID, definitely it seems like stress, anxiety and depression, uh, you know, is of epidemic proportions uh, in today's world. And to begin with, please help us understand the difference between those terms, which sometimes we use interchangeably, anxiety, depression, and stress disorder. Well, depression is very, very easy to distinguish from stress and anxiety. Mm -hmm. Depression, of course, is this uh, profound state of um, deep sadness, um, and it's pervasive, and it negatively impacts one's ability to live a normal healthy lifestyle and it's it's a great burden on those individuals there's also severe risks for suicidality with with severe depression 
Um, so depressive states are, are very easily defined from that perspective. And there's a number of physical symptoms that go along with it as well uh, in terms of the determination clinically of someone who is clinically depressed. So for example, a sleep disturbance is one of the characteristics that will be associated with, with people with severe depression. Anxiety and stress tend to be somewhat overlapping, but anxiety is more a sense of a, of a fear of the, of the, it's not really a fear, but it's sort of a worry about the future, where stress is a much more immediate um, on, you know, current, currently existing uh, experience. And, and they're very common terms, uh, but anxiety disorders have also very discrete definitions, but they really cluster around this whole construct of worry. Uh, which is different than, than the experience of chronic stress where one is feeling overwhelmed. Now, in all cases with mental health conditions, what we are talking about is a dysfunctional thought process. One is in depression constantly, you know, thinking thoughts that are basically depression-related. When one is in anxiety, one is constantly having thoughts that are all about worry about the future. And in stress, it's the same kind of thing, this sense of overwhelming, I can't tolerate what's going on today. Now, yoga, as I've said, works on self-regulation of thought processes. In fact, the most powerful and universally formed used uh, um, form of psychological therapy today is cognitive behavioral therapy. Now, the principal construct behind cognitive behavioral therapy is metacognition. So what we're really saying here is that these thought processes are not just a symptom of some underlying disease. The dysfunctional thought processes are the disease. So in cognitive behavioral therapy, you learn to recognize those dysfunctional thoughts and replace them with neutral thoughts. And it's a very effective therapy. And the disease goes away, which tells you that the disease is the thought processes. It's not something else deeper. It is the thought processes. And yoga also, of course, works on metacognition. So you have an overlap in terms of where yoga functions. Now, yoga has the advantages that it's also working on the physical level to help with stress regulation and physical functioning. And, and um, you know, one of the other things about mental health conditions that is really not recognized very well, even by psychiatrists in the field, um, as well as the general public, is that most all psychological conditions have physical components. Very noticeable and demonstrable physical components. One of the best places where that really shows up is in post-traumatic stress disorder. People have real strong physical symptoms in that disorder, but also you have similar physical uh, symptoms uh, in terms of severity in depression and anxiety. And so the idea of using not just a cognitive approach, which is cognitive behavioral therapy or meditation, but also a physical approach of breath regulation, of physical postures and exercises, works on the body. We are not just minds in jars. And the disorder is not just in our head, in, in our brain. It is manifested in this mind-body continuum. And so yoga works at the mind-body level to address not just the mental components, but also the physical components of mental health conditions. 
And we know that when we when we do a jog, we feel physically better, but also emotionally better. You know, we know that when we get a massage, we feel relaxed, we feel less emotionally tense. There is a very strong mind-body connection um, in humans, as in all organisms. And so modern medicine has really divided this. So there's now psychiatrists who never ask about the body. Mm-hmm. And then there's internal medicine that never asks about the mind. Right. And this schism in modern medicine really began in the 1800s, and it's with us today. Mm-hmm. So whenever you have depression, it's all about the mind. Whenever you have diabetes, it's all about the body. But this is just not the way it works. Right. Um, and yoga being a mind-body intervention addresses both mind-body for both uh, medical conditions as well as psychological conditions. That makes a lot of sense. And I, I would like to reiterate for our listeners that the basic uh, anatomical model that yoga uses has the Panchmaya model, which is interconnectedness of these different layers of our body and um, spiritual well-being. So it really works at the heart of those. So thank you for that. And should we just talk a little bit about your, you know, about your studies, about your research? Um, you have been doing research on the impact of yoga on mental health. So um, would you like to share with us what are the insights um, or the results of those uh, studies? So a lot of my research um, has been conducted on mental health conditions. Um, and that includes insomnia, which is really much more of a mind-body condition. But we've done clinical trials of yoga for chronic insomnia, for post-traumatic stress disorder, and for anxiety disorders, particularly generalized anxiety disorder. And our results really are that the effects that we see clinically are pretty much equivalent to what you would get with a pharmaceutical um, or with a pill. Um, They are effective. And of course, one of the problems with yoga is that you have to actually do something. Now, that presents a problem for many individuals in modern society because um, the medical system has lulled the population into the belief that the doctor is responsible for our health. And that is a major problem in modern society, in modern healthcare, modern medicine, because the responsibility has been shifted from the individual to the doctor. Mm -hmm. So these days, when you give a patient an option for treatment of their disease, look, you have to go to an eight-week program or you have to do cognitive behavioral therapy, you have to do an hour a day or whatever. They say, no, 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 just give me the pill. Um, And that, of course, is not treating the underlying condition. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it is also pervasive. That attitude is pervasive in terms of, um, you know, not engaging in healthful lifestyle behaviors, which are at the root of many of these uh, conditions. So really, yoga works um, at the bottom, at, at, at the core level, at the level at which the causes of the disease are there. So just to give you an example, modern medicine really just focuses on symptom treatment. Mm -hmm. It's a pill to take away, you know, if a person has diabetes, you get a pill to reduce the blood sugar, but there's no talk about changing the real focus on changing the underlying conditions, which are the aberrant lifestyle and the chronic stress that that individual is facing. And, and, you know, so the pill is really a symptom treatment. It's not really a solution to the underlying problem. And, you know, one example, a gross example would be you have a tree in your front lawn and the leaves are all turning brown in the middle of summer. 
and you say, whoa, there's something wrong here. So you go and buy a can of green spray paint and you spray all the leaves green. Okay, problem solved. You've cured the tree, right? It's now green. Well, the problem is, no, there's a disease underneath that tree. You have just treated the symptom of the green color. You have not treated the underlying disorder. And this is what yoga does. It treats the underlying um, physical and psychological processes that underlie virtually every function in the body, which is basically what is dysfunctional in disease. Some, some type of function uh, is disordered, such as thought processes, such as glucose regulation or blood pressure regulation. Mm -hmm. So I have a related question here, which is that a lot of times, as you say, that let's say diabetes or let's say some other uh, hormonal disease like, like hypo or hypothyroidism, um, these diseases could be related to lifestyle. But what if the underlying, the related glands of the body are not working properly, whether it's the pancreas or the thyroid gland? Is yoga able to uh, go that deep and access that root cause? Well, yoga goes as deep as the cells. It goes as deep as our DNA. Uh, we know that yoga practices can make changes in gene expression. It can turn genes on. It can turn genes off. Everything functions through the genes. It's not about the glands. It's all about cellular functioning. And chronic stress has impact on the insides and on the outsides of the cells themselves. Chronic stress has impact on our genes. We know that chronic stress actually can... Um, actually compromise our chromosomes. The ends of the chromosomes are called telomeres. Chronic stress will degrade those telomeres. Chronic stress actually degrades our DNA. Um, we know that chronic stress kills brain cells. Mm. So we are, we're, we're not just working at the glands, we're working at the cellular level here, as does behavior and lifestyle. What you eat and how you exercise those practices have effects at the cellular level. Mm. And so that's where we need to be addressing these problems. And, and the problem is that the dysfunctional behavior is causing the dysfunctional behavior in our functioning from the cells, through the glands, through the, you know, through the entire body. This, this is the way we need to conceptualize this. We are, we are a large organism and, and uh, we affect everything all the way from the DNA up to the full muscle and body and skeleton that we have. Very interesting. And so uh, is it possible to reverse some of these conditions? Let's say a person has been on insulin for a decade or whatever, a few years. Is it possible for uh, at that time for the person to go through yoga therapy and actually reverse a condition that the body has had for many, many years? You know, it's possible to have improvement, mm -hmm. but depending upon the nature of the disease, how long the person has had the disease and how much that person has changed his lifestyle, mm -hmm. there may be only modest changes. Um, you get much more impact if you engage in yoga practices much earlier in life, Got because it. then you're preventing the deterioration of your cells, your glands, your organs, everything. Yoga will give positive benefit for individuals who have had diseases, lifestyle diseases for a long time. However, the degree of improvement may be fairly modest. Mm -hmm. It depends upon the severity of the disease. It depends upon how long they've had it. It depends upon their genetic makeup, and it depends upon their ongoing lifestyle.
certainly we know that the earlier in life you start to adopt these practices, the, the more longer-term benefit you're going to get. Because as the disease goes on for multiple decades, there's damage being done to your body. And that damage to some degree may be unrecoverable. So yoga will have benefit. It may not be able to reverse the disease, but it may be able to substantially help. You may be able to reduce your dose mm-hmm. of blood pressure medication or insulin um, when you are older. Certainly, you will improve your quality of life, which is one of the major contributions that yoga has. And there's no pill in modern medicine for that. <laughs> Absolutely. So actually, this is a perfect segue into my next question, which is, uh, I was very um, happy to see that some of your research focuses on the impact of yoga on, on our youth, uh, let's say in school settings. So starting early sounds excellent and very beneficial. So what does your research say, uh, you know, how yoga is helping these youngsters? So children and adolescents can practice yoga. And that practice can go down all the way to preschool. Um, There's things that can be done uh, and practiced by even the youngest ages that will give benefit. It won't be the very complex asanas that adults do, Mm -hmm. but these children will learn the ability to self-regulate. They'll learn the ability to to, to be able to relax. They'll learn the ability to become a little bit more flexible and, and how to maintain that. And my rationale for going into research on yoga in the public schools was because of the idea that prevention of NCDs mm-hmm. is perhaps the greatest contribution that yoga could provide, because we're talking about future generations. Mm-hmm. And if we can engage children into yoga practices, into yoga lifestyles early in life, we can, over time, eliminate altogether this epidemic of non-communicable diseases. It really is an epidemic. At this point in time in the United States, 90% of all deaths are due to NCDs. Wow. So if we can get yoga into the schools, Mm -hmm. we get everyone. Mm -hmm. We get all of the children. And that means that everyone comes out of the school with this skill and this uh, ongoing yoga practice. And if we do this for three generations, then we can wipe out NCDs altogether. Wow. And also it seems to me, or probably to all of us, that the stresses of our society are continuing to increase. Of course, our ancestors had different types of stress, but um, you know, with the conflicts, with climate change, I feel like the kids and the next generation are already feeling the anxiety of that they are growing up into, uh, you know, into probably an unstable world. And um, I do hope that yogic practices can, um, you know, help our kids, you know, better deal with those stresses that they are about to face as they grow up. Um, yeah, so that's, that's great. I think we have had an excellent uh, understanding of how yoga practices are could help with all these lifestyle related diseases but i do have one last question for you before we let you go today which is that you are a practitioner of kundalini yoga and you've been practicing it for many decades now so we'd love to hear a little bit more about this practice and uh, how is it different from some of the more well-known forms of yoga like hatha yoga 
Well, hatha yoga is a very general term. And in fact, when you look at what is being practiced in the modern world, the word, the word hatha yoga really turns out to be meaningless. Uh, there's no such thing as a hatha yoga lineage per se. What we have in modern society are lineages that have been taught by a number of teachers. So we have Iyengar yoga, we have Kripalu yoga, um, we have Shivananda yoga, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And these are all forms. I mean, all of the yoga that's being practiced is a form of hatha yoga. Mm-hmm. So the term hatha yoga really is meaningless. And say, in, in for what someone says, I'm practicing hatha yoga. That that really tells you nothing. What you really need to specify is what it is that you're exactly practicing. And different yoga styles are different with respect to the emphasis they may place on those different components, whether they're more focused on the asanas, whether they're more focused on the pranayam, whether they're more focused on the meditative component or the spiritual component. So there are some styles of yoga that are much more physically oriented and some styles that are much more spiritually oriented. Kundalini yoga, as taught by Yogi Bhajan, um, is much more spiritually oriented. It incorporates all of those four components. It's different in the way that it applies some of these practices in terms of the asanas and, and, the, uh, and, the, and the pranayama and the meditation. Many of the exercises are all done with all three occurring at the same time. So you're modifying your breath, you're doing the asana, um, you're also maybe doing a mantra, and then you're also meditating. So it's a very dynamic form of yoga practice. And then often in many of the practices will be incorporating all of those aspects. It can be a very vigorous practice. So it's a much more vigorous practice than some of the sort of really relaxed types of practices like restorative yoga. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is really very much focused on this whole idea of spiritual growth and spiritual development, but being done in a very um, uh, stable and straightforward manner uh, on a regular basis to have this very gradual increase in consciousness and spirituality. So it's very much a spiritual discipline. Um, and uh, we have a lot of uh, particular meditations that, that have been taught. These are specific practices that are often incorporating uh, a, a mudra or a body position together with a specific mantra, together with a specific breathing technique. And there's many, many different meditations that we have that are all um, said to have different effects on different types of functions. So for example, there's meditations for depression, there's meditations for prosperity, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, The classes are typically an hour long. um, And it is now a major um, form of yoga in the West. It is most dominant in the United States, in Europe, and in South America. Mm-hmm. It has much less presence, and it's also becoming popular in China and Australia. It has much less, actually, presence in India, um, mm-hmm. because Yogi Bhajan began teaching it here in the U.S. Interesting. And uh, in terms of the nomenclature, so how is it related to Kundalini? Uh, so it is just so again, this is another term that is that yeah. is misconceived, and particularly mostly by people in India, because it's a term that that really raises a lot of eyebrows in India as soon as you use the word kundalini. Kundalini is basically philosophically conceptualized as the energy essentially within the body. It's said to rise up and down the spine. Mm-hmm. Virtually any meditation or yoga practice affects the kundalini. So in in that sense. All yoga is kundalini yoga. Now, 
if you're talking about Kundalini Yoga and specifically I arg arguing about this type of spiritual development with the energy, you're talking about a more spiritual form of yoga. Mm -hmm. And so that's, you know, consistent with, you know, why we are called Kundalini Yoga. There are other styles of Kundalini Yoga. Most of them are based in India. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, we are the dominant form outside of India. Um, and really, Kundalini refers to that energy of consciousness, if you will. Understood. Thank you so much, Sadhguruji. I think it's been an enlightening conversation, and we really appreciate you taking the time and sharing with us all your insights from your research and from your practice. So thank you so much again. It was My a pleasure. pleasure.